This is Focus on God's Word with Graham Weir. Hello everyone, I'm Graham Weir. Welcome to part four of the Reformation Revisited. This is the six-part dynamic series examining the great Protestant Reformation and its vital implications for the survival of Christianity today. And in this presentation, we're going to take a look at the crisis that God people can expect to encounter during the end times of Earth's history. And we'll also reveal how God's Word provides the discernment and spiritual defences that are needed to withstand the attacks of the enemy and maintain a genuine spirit of the Reformation. Let's begin with a prayer. Loving Father in heaven, we praise thee and thank thee for an opportunity to come together and share the wonderful truths from thy word. We are conscious that you are showing us the great heritage of the Reformation and its implications for today. We are conscious that many are saying that the Protestant, the Protestant Reformation is over, it is finished. But we do not believe that. And Lord, we want you to bless us with your presence this morning, this afternoon, and show us, Lord, that there is much work to be done and that this time is running out. Your people need to wake up, trim their lamps, and be prepared for your coming. Help us, Lord, to do this. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and incline our hearts to want to do your will. Because we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Our Bible says... Uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8. We're going to have a look at that. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8. And it says this. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth, and that word means obstruct or hinder, will continue to let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So he must ask the question, what is this mystery of iniquity spoken about here? Well, we can get a clue from that amazing Bible commentary called The Great Controversy, which uses some very interesting labels to describe this mystery of iniquity. Let's take a look, and I'm quoting. It says, Little by little, at first in stealth and silence, and then more openly as it increased in strength and gained control of the minds of men, the mystery of iniquity carried forward its deceptive and blasphemous work. Almost imperceptibly, the customs of heathenism found their way into the Christian church. Well, this statement gives us a clue that the mystery of iniquity has something to do with the customs of heathenism. Now, let's read a little further. She says, The spirit of compromise and conformity was restrained for a time by the fierce persecutions which the church endured under paganism. So here we get another label. The spirit of compromise and conformity. We'll keep reading. But as persecution ceased and Christianity entered the courts and palaces of kings, she laid aside the humble simplicity of Christ and his apostles, 
for the pomp and pride of pagan priests and rulers. And in place of the requirements of God, he substituted human theories and traditions. Another label, human theories and traditions. We continue. The nominal conversion of Constantine in the early part of the first century caused great rejoicing. And the world, cloaked with a form of righteousness, walked into the church. Under a cloak of pretended Christianity, Satan was insinuating himself into the church to corrupt their faith and turn their minds from the word of truth. Most of the Christians at last consented to lower their standard, and a union was formed between Christianity and paganism. Now here's another clue. They consented to lower their standard. Although the worshippers of idols professed to be converted and united with the church, they still clung to their idolatry, only changing the objects of their worship to images of Jesus and even of Mary and the saints. They simply changed the labels on pagan idols. The foul leaven of idolatry thus brought into the church continued its baleful work. Unsound doctrines, superstitious rites and idolatrous ceremonies were incorporated into her faith and worship. And as the followers of Christ united with Adelaide's, the Christian religion became corrupted and the church lost her purity and power. So we see another clue. It causes corruption and a loss of power, a loss of purity and power. Now if we put all these labels together, we get a very clear picture of the mystery of iniquity. We see that it involves at least six of these factors. Number one, the customs of heathenism. Number two, compromise and conformity. Number three, human theories and traditions. Number four, it lowers standards. Number five, it causes corruption. And number six, it causes a loss of purity and power. So we can see here in Paul's second letter to the believers in Thessalonica, that he was showing them exactly how the enemy of Christ would deceitfully work to gradually undermine and overthrow their faith. Now let's read verses 8 and 9 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So Paul is saying that in the falling away, a power would arise as an agent of Satan. And this power would use a combination of the customs of heathenism, compromise and conformity, human theories and traditions to lower Christian standards and cause corruption of the faith and a loss of purity and power to the followers of Christ. And furthermore, he would drive this destructive process by means of overpowering lies and deceitful delusions. And Paul reveals even more details when he says, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this, go, this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And verse 12 says that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
So in these verses, Paul holds out both a promise and a warning. The promise is that the only ones who will be deceived will be those who receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And note here Paul's key word, the love of the truth. He wasn't just talking about those who, who said that they do hear it, they did believe it, and they pre- profess to receive it, but who in spite of their outward profession, they don't love it enough to make their guide and rule of life. They just seem to be satisfied with some kind of intellectual ascent without seeing any kind of need to reform their way of life. So they, they profess to receive the truth, but they didn't love it enough to make it their guide and way of life. That's what he's talking about here. Not just those who receive the truth. And the Bible itself warns about this kind of attitude in James 1, to 25. And we're going to have a look at that text. James 1, to 25. And it says this, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's warning in verse 11 and 12 makes it very clear that if a person professes to be a believer in God, but chooses to be carelessly ignorant of his word, and I'm not talking about those who don't have access to the Bible or can't read it, I'm talking about those who do have the Bible, but choose to ignore or neglect it or worse, misinterpret it to fit their own opinions. If people do that, then the result will be that God will not protect them from believing lies. Lies that lead to strong delusions. Delusions so bad that damnation and loss of eternal life would be the end result. You don't want to be deluded like that, do you? No way. Paul makes it very plain that his warnings are an incredibly serious matter not only for the believers in Thessalonica, but I believe God intended it also for all believers today. What do you say? It's important. Therefore, it's vitally important that God's people understand exactly how to identify such potentially deadly delusions to avoid becoming ensnared by them. And thankfully, God's living word in the Bible makes the evidence so clear even a child can understand it. Let's explore the evidence God has given us in biblical history. I'm not going to quote all the texts. I'm not going to read all the texts to you from the Bible. We're just going to summarize them because there's a lot of material in here and we have limited time. So I'll be summarizing some of them. Isaiah 14, 12 to 14 records the nature of the very first conflict in the controversy between good and evil. We will look up this one. This is in uh, Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. We'll have a look at that. We will read this one. And it's Isaiah 14 and verse 12 to 14. And it says this, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nation? 
because I have said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of a congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So what's the problem? What was Lucifer striving for in this conflict? The Bible tells us he wanted to be like the Most High. So clearly, he wanted to be worshipped like God. So we see that the first conflict in the Great Controversy was over what? Worship. That was the key. Now, if we look at the first conflict in human history, as recorded in Genesis 4 to 3 to 8, we won't read this one, but we see again that worship was the focus of the conflict. Not who to worship this time, but how to worship. Worship was the issue again. And if we consider the conflict between Elijah, Ahab, and the priest of Baal and Mount Carmel, Carmel, you can look it up if you want after the program. It's in 1 Kings 18, 17 to 39. Once again, we see that the conflict in this story was clearly a conflict over... Who? To worship. And notice also that all the people in this story were of the same nation. But most of them had become ensnared by overpowering lies and deceitful delusion that involved the same six identifiers we just spoke about earlier. Let's look at them again. The customs of heathenism, compromise and conformity, human theories and traditions, it lowers standards, it caused corruption and a loss of purity and power. That's what they were involved in. And there are other examples. In Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's three friends who were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down before King Nebuchadnezzar's image on the plain of Dura were involved in a conflict about what? Worship. worship. Who will they worship? And take a look at the experience of Christ himself during his temptation by Satan after 40 days of fasting. We will read this one in Matthew 4, verses 8 to 10. This is very interesting. Matthew 4, verses 8 to 10. And verse 8 says, Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto them, unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship who? The Lord thy God. The Lord thy God. And him only shall thou serve. So we see here again the Bible illustrates a conflict over who to worship. And all through the history of the Dark Ages, more than 100 million martyrs were tortured and murdered because they refused to participate in false worship. So for the student of God's word, it should be no surprise that the final conflict in human history and therefore the basis of all delusions can be expected to centre around three issues. Number one, who we worship. Number two, how we worship, and number three, when we worship. 
Now, when God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger on stone, he even gave us a hint that the issue of how we worship would arise right there in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and verse 3. Let's have a look at this one. Exodus 20 and verse 3. Exodus 20 and verse 3. And it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So we see here in the first commandment that it opposes the worship of false gods. Is that right? It opposes the worship of false gods. Now let's look at the second commandment in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So that's the reinforcement of the first one, isn't it? Now look at some more. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So we see that the second commandment reinforces the first one. But it also implies something else, and I wonder if you can see it. It says, don't worship the true God in a false way. Does make it clear? There are plenty of people out there who worship idols. They don't worship the idols. They say they don't worship the idol, that the idol is just a symbol of the God they worship. But the Lord says in the Bible, don't worship the true God in a false way. Because God put that there because he knew that men would be inclined to invent their own ideas of how to worship. And that was exactly what Cain did and Jeroboam and many others. They thought their own opinion was more important than what God says. You know, sometimes people say, oh yeah, God may say, but I think. What's the God? I think. They don't worship the God of heaven. They worship the God called, I think, the God of their own opinions. So it is a conflict between Christ and his followers and Satan and his followers. And the Sabbath versus Sunday issue in the last days will be a conflict about when we worship. Isn't that so? Mm -hmm. When we worship. And this is a conflict between Christ and his followers and Satan and his followers. And the weapons of each party are entirely different. Christ always appealed to the record of his unfailing love and personal sacrifice, as revealed in the Bible. But his adversary, Satan, resorts to every means of force and deception. Christ impacts our emotions by appealing to reason. He says in Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now, let us reason together. But in contrast, Satan appeals to our emotions in order to twist our reason. He says, Come now, let us experience together. Experience the alluring attractions of sin. If it feels good, do it. Experience the wealth of ill-gotten gain. Feel the emotion of serving self. Feel the freedom, so-called, of accepting that God's law was done away with at the cross, not necessary anymore. But friend, Paul's combination of warning and promise to the Thessalonians also informs us today that as the spirit of compromise, conformity and disobedience would continue to drive the world and God's precious people away from the light of truth back into the dark ages, so God's Holy Spirit of, what's it say? Compromise. 
obedience would continue to send the Reformation call out of darkness into light. <coughs> now let's take a look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. And it says this, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. So we see here that God's last warning message to the world is a final call how to worship him. The true way by obedience. Is that clear? Also, we see that the angel's messages appealed with a loud voice to fear God. Well, what does it mean to fear God? It simply means to reverence or obey God. And it also calls us to give glory to him. What does that mean? It simply means that out of profound gratitude for what he's done to save us through his son, we want to demonstrate our love for him by honouring him in all that we do. What do you say, folks? in speaking, in eating, in dressing, in our behaviour. Everything we do in private or in public is being observed by unfallen beings on other worlds. Do you believe that? We are actors on the theatre of the universe. They watch the conflict between good and evil on this planet with the most intense interest. You might say, why? Why would they be so interested on what happens on this horrible place? Simply because they want to be reassured that those whom God intends to save and bring back to them to live with them for eternity can safely be trusted never to entertain disobedience like those who were cast out to the earth with Lucifer. Make sense? It's simple. The true remnant church will be ready for Jesus to come, will call men and women to be obedient in who they worship, how they worship, and when they worship. It will encourage obedience to worship him on the day that is clearly specified, the true Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. And it will teach that God's holy word has more authority than man-made opinions and traditions. What do you say? Mm -hmm. Amen. On the other hand, Christ's enemy, although outwardly professing belief in the truth, will by its false worship practices teach people to be the opposite of obedience, disobedient. By worshipping according to man-made ideas and traditions instead of the word of God and on a day that God did not command, Sunday, the first day of the week. It will subtly teach people to regard the Ten Commandments as done away with at the cross. And that we can safely ignore doctrine for the sake of universal unity. Have you heard that before? Mm -hmm. Don't worry about doctrine. Just come together for unity. When we look back at the emergence of the spirit of compromise, conformity and disobedience during the Dark Ages, we discover that one of the major steps it took was to change the law of God in such a way that it would deceive the people into thinking it hadn't been changed at all. Take a look at these two versions of the commandments. On the left, you see them just as they appear in the Bible in Exodus 23 to 11. 
And on the right, you see them as they commonly appear in Roman Catholic catechism. And you can see there's a profound difference. The second one about images has been removed entirely, and the third one put in its place. The fourth one has had over 90% of it removed, particularly the part that identifies which day is the Sabbath. And to make up for the removal of number two, the tenth has been divided into two commandments to make up the number ten. So if a reader was not familiar with the original in God's word, they would be not aware that any significant change had been made. That's subtle, that deceptive. It sure is, isn't it? To summarise, the two rival powers in the end-time crisis will call every inhabitant of the world to worship God according to their commands. One power will lovingly knock on the door of our heart and invite us to worship God the true way according to his word in the Bible. The rival power will at first deceitfully coerce, then ruthlessly demand that we worship God the false way according to man's word, tradition. On the side of the Antichrist power, we can expect to see a unity of church and state to develop an international system of government which initially will appear to have very noble goals of saving the planet, stopping all wars, and ending poverty. But behind the scenes, we can expect it will quickly become highly repressive and brutal against anyone who refuses to participate in its system of social reorganization. And eventually, particularly those who refuse to be involved in its legislative false worship practices. And we can see this system developing in the speeches of the previous Pope, Benedict XVI in 2009. Listen to these words. He said, There is urgent need of a true world political authority. As my predecessor, Blessed John XXIII, indicated some years ago, such an authority would need to be regulated by law. Notice the language to observe consistently the principles of subsidiarity and solidarity. You know what that means? Subsidiarity simply means that your goods can be shared with those who don't have them. You don't have any right to own anything. Your house can be used to house other people. If they don't have a home, they're told to come and live in your house and you can't do anything about it. Your car can be shared with others. It all becomes common property. That's what subsidiarity means. And solidarity means everybody together. They work for the common good. To seek to establish, as he says, the common good and to make a commitment to securing authentic, integral human development inspired by the values of charity and truth. Sounds flowery, doesn't it? Sounds good. Furthermore, such an authority would need to be universally recognised and be invested with the effective power to ensure security for all, regard for justice, and respect, respect for rights, except, of course, your individual rights. And also, in the words of the Count Pope Francis, in his 2015 encyclical, Care of Our Common Home, in which he was promoting the common good, he said this, 
International climate negotiations cannot make significant progress due to positions taken by countries which place their national interest above the global common good. Climate change, he says, is a global problem whose solution will depend on our stepping beyond national affiliation and coming together for the common good. The establishment of a legal framework, there's that language again, which can set clear boundaries and ensure the protection of ecosystems has become indispensable. No wonder people listen to this. No wonder people follow it. It sounds so good. It's going to save the planet. But some Christian commentators can see the hidden agenda behind such outwardly commendable language. And one of them, Pastor Stephen Bohr from California, he had this to say. Interesting to note his words. He said, the Pope's encyclical, which was released June 18, 2015, published about two months after the climate change and the Common Good Declaration, suggested that the elimination of carbon gases, carpooling, planting trees, turning off unnecessary lights, restricting the use of air conditioning, recycling and boycotting certain products, as well as giving the planet a, what's he say? Sunday rest will help solve the problem. And Pastor Boyle says, of course, one of the Pope's provisions of the Save the Planet crusade is making Sunday a day for the environment to rest, for families to strengthen their ties by attending Mass and to give the poor a break from what he perceives as the endless and dehumanising cycle of capitalist life. He said the not-too-subtle insertion of Sunday at the end of the encyclical appears innocuous or innocent at first, but as Adventists, we know what the papacy's ultimate purpose is in bringing global climate change to the forefront. Can you see that, folks? It's a lever. It's a lever to bring about a system of one world government that everybody would unite on this platform of saving the planet. But there's an evil purpose behind it. What many fail to understand, Pastor Bull says, is that the word papacy does not refer to the Roman Catholic Church as a religious entity. He says it is rather a code word for a system that unites church and state and whose leader, in union with the Council of Bishops, claims to have the divine right to global jurisdiction in both religious and secular matters. He says, little does the world realise what the ultimate aspirations of the papacy really are. Global dominion with an iron fist. And note, I didn't make that up. I'm simply quoting historians. And believe it or not, this isn't some startling, horrific news. 150 years ago, Ellen White predicted in her Christian commentary, Last Day Events, that worship would be the centerpiece of the final conflict. Listen to these words. She says, When our nation, the United States, and its legislative council shall enact laws to bind the consciences of men in regard to their religious privileges, enforcing Sunday observance and bringing oppressive power to bear against those who keep the seventh-day Sabbath. What's the target of these laws? The people who keep the seventh-day Sabbath. Very interesting. The law of God will, to all intents and purposes, 
be made void in our land, and national apostasy will be followed by what? National ruin. Little do these people know who are framing these laws what they're shaping their country up for. National ruin. If I could see ahead, if I could see this quote, they'd be horrified and think twice about it. My friends, we must ask the question, just how real is this? Can we really believe that the United States is close to making such drastic changes to their laws? Changes so drastic as to alter their constitution to get rid of that great principle of separation of church and state? That great principle that is the foundation of their national prosperity and freedom, is that really possible? I'm sure most Americans and most Australians and many other people around the world would ask this question, come on. They would say this is impossible. This nation was founded on religious freedom. Well, I want, to, I want you to watch this amazing video from Amazing Discoveries. These are the issues of the day. The Christian Pope says megachurch pastor Jack Graham ready to champion Donald Trump after meeting with 900 evangelicals. Now he's also one of those that went to the Pope. Former Southern Baptist Convention president and megachurch pastor Jack Graham says that he is ready to champion Donald Trump after attending the meeting between the presumptive Republican nominee and over 900 evangelical pastors and activists in New York City on Tuesday. These people are on the one hand now the advisors to the president and to bring about this change, this making America great again. And on the other hand, they are the ones who are negotiating with the papacy for reunification. In fact, that is exactly what Donald Trump vowed to do. Donald Trump vowed to close the gap between church and state, according to Time. And it states that the GOP presidential nominee has tripled down with one base of political support that has steadfastly remained with him white evangelical voters by promising to dismantle the laws that separate church and state in America. Now it's fascinating what he said on the issue. And if you look what happened to religion, if you look at what's happening to Christianity, and you look at the number of people going to the churches, and the evangelicals know this also, it's not on this kind of climb, it's on this kind of a climb of slow and steady in the wrong direction, Trump said. A lot of it has to do with the fact that you've been silenced. You've been silenced like a child has been silenced. You have a chance to do something that will be earth-shaking, he said. I literally mean it, earth-shaking. You've got to get your people out to vote. Now, if this is what Donald Trump promised, then he is promising precisely what the Bible said would happen. An earth-shaking event that will induce God to intervene in human affairs. It's interesting that both Donald Trump and Pence said that they cherished the Sunday because that is part of their heritage and that is what they remember of their childhood. Now the Lord's Day Alliance in the Boston Globe said the following, the Lord's Day Alliance founded by six major Protestant denominations in 1888. I find these dates so fascinating. 
spent a century fighting to force industrialists to give workers time to attend religious services and later to protect the blue laws. Those are the ones that bring in Sunday legislation. But little by little, drinking, sporting, shopping became permissible on Sundays. In the last 20 or so years, the group has shifted to advocating to an internal recognition of the Sabbath. The point is, where can a stressed out society find regeneration and renewal? Said Reverend Rodney Peterson, executive director of the group who drew dozens of people to an interfaith conference on Sabbath observance last week at the Old South Church in Copley Square. So this was reported in the Boston Globe on November the 2nd, 2016. This is an evangelical agenda to bring Sunday back into the mainstream again. And here we have candidates, I believe, that are in a position and have the power base to do it. Because for the first time, Republicans control both houses. This is one of the most powerful presidents that the United States has ever had. And if ever there was an opportunity to bring about the prof prophetic scenario, it is now. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm saying it is possible for it to happen. Revelation 13 verse 15 says, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Is this the time in which this prophecy will be fulfilled? Only time will tell. Friends, the warnings from the pens of history and prophecy are beginning to resonate with approaching thunder. And I believe it's time for Christians everywhere, and especially all Americans, to remember this great council written 150 years ago in that famous Bible commentary, The Great Controversy, which says this, to protect liberty of conscience is the duty of the state. And this is the limit of its authority in matters of religion. Every secular government that attempts to regulate or enforce religious observance by civil authority is sacrificing the very principle for which evangelical Christians so nobly struggled. That's good counsel, isn't it? We need to remember it. And remember more than 100 million people died in defense of this religious freedom we enjoy today. Freedom from state control of their consciences. Will their horrific death now be conveniently forgotten? The final crisis in the last days will be about the same issue as when it began. Worship will be the centerpiece issue that determines the eternal destiny of millions. The final crisis will focus on the first four commandments because these deal with worship issues. Who we should worship, when we should worship, and how we should worship, all encased in the first four commandments. So in the light of this history, every person who sincerely wants to know God must ask the question, how can I identify delusive, false worship practices? Well, based on the enemy strategies of the customs of heathenism, compromise and conformity, 
human theories and traditions, it lowers standards, it causes corruption, and a loss of purity and power, I've made up a little list of identifiers that might help you. The first one is we're talking about creeping compromise. You can expect to see deliberate de-emphasis of distinctive doctrines in an attempt to make worship more, worship more relevant or attractive to unbelievers. This will pull standards down rather than pointing to God's standards. I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about Christianity in general. Any teaching that does this, we can see that it's the false worship system. The second one will be diluted truth. It would teach a social psychology gospel with little or no call to repentance, revival and reformation. Just love one another. And the third one, truth versus present truth. It would preach the generic truths no different from the preachings of any other denomination. It will ignore the distinctive end-time three angels' messages in Daniel and Revelation. And these present truths are vital. Don't you believe that? The three angels' messages in Revelation 14 are vital information for the world at this time. And it's very unlikely you will hear them outside the Seventh-day Adventist church. This is the place to be. What do you say? Feeble and defective though it may be, it is still the apples of God's eye. And this is the only place you'll find all these doctrines taught. And the fourth one, it will ignore the importance of the sanctuary message of Christ's final atonement ministry in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. It will neglect the call to repentance, revival and sanctification and obedience as a response to the grace of Christ. Not in order to be saved, but as a response to the grace of Christ. That's why we keep the commandments, isn't it? We don't get saved by it. We're not legalists. And the fifth will be teachings that tend to corrupt basic doctrines and cause a loss of purity and power in the Christian's life. For example, the doctrines of faith without works. Or the opposite error of works without faith. True faith will be exhibited in good works. For faith without works is what? Dead. All who an honest heart receive the gospel message will long to proclaim it, won't they? The heaven-born love of Christ must find expression. You agree? You've got to talk about it. Faith and works go hand in hand. They act harmoniously in the work of overcoming. Work without faith are dead. And faith without works are dead too. Isn't that so? Works will never save us. It is the merit of Christ that will avail in our behalf. Through faith in him, Christ will empower and enable us to overcome sin and to demonstrate his love for us in our lives. Isn't that true? You might have heard the claim that it's impossible to keep the commandments or stop sinning till Jesus comes. Ever heard that? Well... If there's anything more dangerous than outright error, it's truth mixed with error. If you put a drop of poison in a glass of water, it might still taste like ordinary water, but it will still kill you, won't it? The partial truth is that of course we can't stop sinning by our own power. 
But the rest of the truth is that we deny the power thereof when we refuse to believe that Christ has the supernatural power to enable us to overcome sin and keep the commandments. What do you say? That's simple, isn't it? Why do people fight over this? To neglect this point is to leave people uninformed of the reality that the Saviour took upon himself the infirmities of humanity and lived a sinless life in order to demonstrate that men might have no fear that because of the weakness of human nature they could not overcome. To teach that it is impossible to overcome sin is to corrupt the water of life with poison. What do you say? The inevitable result will be a loss of purity and power in the Christian's life. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 gives us this assurance, and you can see this text on the screen. It says, Exceeding great and precious promises are ours, that by these we might be, what's it say? Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And Ellen White offered this great counsel. She says, The Saviour took upon himself the infirmities of humanity and lived a sinless life. That men might have no fear that because of the weakness of human nature they could not overcome. Isn't that good news? And there's just one more identifier of delusive worship, worship practices that I want to mention in this presentation. And this practice is one that can potentially cause enormous loss of purity and genuine godly power in the Christian's life. And it is this. Disharmonic music. Disharmonic music. Ellen White had a terrible experience with disharmonic music over 150 years ago. And she warned it would appear again towards the end of time. Listen to her report. She says, a bedlam of noise shocks the senses and perverts that which if conducted aright might be a blessing. The powers of satanic agencies blend with the din and noise to have a carnival. And this is termed the Holy Spirit's working. She says, those things which have been in the past will be in the future. Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted. He says, let us give no place to strange exercisings, which really take the mind away from the deep movings of the Holy Spirit. God's work is ever characterised by calmness and dignity. By calmness and dignity. You ever listen to rock music? Anybody? You ever listen to rock music? Did it leave you feeling calm and dignified? Hardly. Have you ever listened to Christian rock music? Have you listened to Christian rock music? Yeah. Did that leave you feeling calm and dignified? It didn't. Well, the words may have been Christianized, but that didn't change your feeling, did it? These are the important questions. It is a common belief today that the choice of music is really a matter of personal taste, maybe culture. It is rarely thought of in terms of its science its physiological effects on the human organism. And what a fascinating study that would be. You know, when we talk about food and diet, we don't talk about, to, to determine the difference between healthy and unhealthy food, we don't talk about taste and culture, do we? 
we analyze the food. You have dietitians analyze food and they can tell you the effects of certain elements of food, certain types of food on the human organism. That's how we tell the difference between healthy and unhealthy food. How fantastic it would be if we had some Adventists or some scientists who could investigate the physiological elements of music, the various aspects of music, and examine the effects on the human organism. Wouldn't that be a fascinating study? I wonder what the conclusions would reveal. The general attitude seems to be that if the words are Christian and it feels good, well, it must be okay. And anyway, you might have heard the statement that music is morally neutral. But is it really morally neutral? Does it make no difference to our behaviour what kind of music we listen to? When we understand that before his fall, Satan was the leader of heavenly music, shouldn't that fact make us be careful what kind of music we listen to? What do you say? Yes. To make a decision about music based on personal preferences or culture or age is a very unscientific approach. So he must ask the question, well, is all music disharmonic and dangerous? Well, of course not. So how can a Christian make his decision? Well, perhaps we can take a note of the advice of our current world president, Dr. Ted Wilson. Way back at his inaugural sermon back in 2010, he made some very interesting statements and he said this. Go forward, not backwards. Use Christ-centered, Bible-based worship and music practices in church services. While we understand that worship services and cultures vary throughout the world, don't go backwards into confusing pagan settings where music and worship become so focused on emotion and experience that you lose the central focus on the Word of God. All worship, however simple or complex, should do one thing and one thing only, lift up Christ and put down self. Isn't that good advice? Worship methods that lift up performance and self should be replaced with a simple and sweet reflection of a Christ-centered biblical approach. To define it too closely is impossible, but when you read in Scripture of the holiness of God's presence, the Holy Spirit will help you to know what is right and wrong. Friends, our personal decisions about who we worship, how we worship, and when we worship are of far greater consequence than just cultural or age group preferences. Our worship choices will ultimately determine our eternal destiny. And God's true followers will be distinguished as those who keep the commandments, uphold sound doctrine, choose worship practices in harmony with the Bible, choose health-supporting lifestyle and dietary practices. And the Bible assures us that in the last days, God's remnant people will be a people of obedience. They will honour God in everything that they do. And the Bible confirms this fact in Revelation 14, verse 2, it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. God's true remnant will ultimately triumph in the great conflict over worship. Thus proving to the entire watching universe that indeed holiness is possible even in this sinful world. What do you say? <laughs> That's our task. Think about these wonderful promises as you watch this moving story by Pastor John Bradshaw and the hymn, faith of our fathers. Now this makes it real. The Church of the Cave 
ancient temple of the faith revives the heroic spirit of the fathers who, praying, suffered and died for liberty of conscience. Here in the Waldensian Valleys in northern Italy, people really suffered for their faith. They were committed to God to live way back up here. The winters were just so harsh. Life was difficult. But here they lived so that they could cling to the faith once delivered to the saints. And being here and thinking that people way up here suffered persecution speaks to the ferocious zeal of the persecutors. It's not easy to get up here. And if you're going to uh, pursue somebody for the purpose of persecuting them, you've got to be as committed to persecuting as the believers were to following Jesus in faith. Behind me is one of the very caves in which Waldensian believers uh, worshipped and prayed and hid and were persecuted. They worshipped in caves because worshipping in their homes or in churches was not an option. Again, no crimes were committed by these people other than they felt that in their heart they had to cling to the Bible and follow what they believed was a pure faith rather than the tradition-laden, works-based faith that was forced upon them by the ruling church. Today, we have freedom to worship, freedom of religion. Today, we can be thankful to those faithful saints who paid so great a price that we could follow the faith of our fathers.
Let us pray. Loving Father in heaven, we praise thee and thank thee so much for the faith of our fathers. The incredible price that was paid for freedom of religion, freedom to worship. Lord, keep us conscious of these things as we consider the events about to explode upon the world as an overwhelming surprise for many. Help us, Lord, to remain steadfast and immovable and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts inclined to do your will as we move forward in faith and practice. Because, Lord, we long for you to come. Please come, Lord Jesus. And we thank you in your precious name. Amen. listening to Focus on God's Word with Graham Weir, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au.